If you have your Bible with you, open to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to continue studying through the book of Revelation. We're almost done. Uh, if you're just joining us and you'd like to say, hey, I missed the whole book. Well, it's online. You can get it online. It's there all the way back to chapter 1. Um, this morning we're going to finish chapter 21 and look at the first five verses in chapter 22. Uh, what an amazing section of scripture we've come to. Uh, we're, we've been talking about heaven, about the, you know, this is not the millennial reign. This is what, what eternity will look like with Christ. And we've endured all that has to happen to leading up to this from, you know, we've seen the throne room of God. We've seen Jesus walking among the seven churches. We've seen the judgments being poured out on the Christ rejecting world. And now as we come to these final two chapters, we get this picture of what lies ahead in the life of the believer and what a blessing it is because it's what motivates us. You know, I look at some of the things that we have to endure on this earth and, and through this life, and, and there's some really hard situations and circumstances that we have to go through, isn't there? Can you imagine to try to, to navigate some of these things without Christ, without the hope of eternity, without the hope of, hey, there's something more than just what this life has to offer? Because if this is it, if there's nothing else, what do you think? It's not all that cracked, it's not all it's cracked up to be, is it? Because there's seasons that are good, but there's also some seasons that are hard. But for the believer, we look and we see Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's coming. It's where we're going to spend eternity ruling and reigning with Christ. And John is giving us, he's describing it to us the best that he can. And remember, when it comes to the book of Revelation, everybody wants to look and say, oh, it's symbolic of this, oh, it's symbolic of that. I think it's important to remember that what John is seeing He's limited to describe to us with the language and the words that he already knows, he understands. John doesn't know what the word, uh, well, just for example, what the word helicopter is because he had never seen one. So if he were to see one in the book of Revelation, he's going to describe it in the terms that he would know. So it makes it kind of difficult for us, but I think our best bet as we approach this book is not to take it so much symbolically, except for where it says it's a symbol, is to take it literally, just as it was intended to be written by the Lord. It was penned by John, and I think it was meant for us to understand, and it was meant for us to receive this hope of what is coming. In the following verses this morning, John's going to describe the new Jerusalem. He introduced that to us last week. In, chap in verse 2 of chapter 21, it said, Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this morning we're going to see a, a more of an in-depth description of this new Jerusalem, of this city. And we're going to see that John describes it. He's going to talk about the glory of the city. He's going to talk about the city, about the wall surrounding the city. He's going to talk about the gates of the city. He's going to talk about the immense size of this city, how big this city actually is. He's going to talk about the river of water that's flowing from the throne of God in the city. He's going to talk about the tree of life, which is growing and bearing fruit within the city. But it's also interesting to note that in our study this morning, he's going to leave, he's going to, he's going to notice there's some things missing in the city. He's going to mention, hey, there's no, there's no temple in the city. There's no sun or there's no moon in the city. There's no day or there's no, there's no day or night. But he's also going to say there's nothing that defiles, nothing that causes an abomination. There's no lies in this city. It's going to truly be a city of God where God resides and God dwells with his people. Now look with me in verse 9 of chapter 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and he talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away into the spirit, in the spirit to a great and high mountain 
And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now notice the word come there. The angel that comes to John, he says, hey, come. This is a, this is a command, it's not an invitation. The Greek language there, he's literally saying, you have no choice, John. Come, I'm going to show you something. It wasn't like John had the ability to go, nah, I think I'm going to hang out here for a while. The the, the angel's saying to John, come. And this is the same way that we saw John summoned in chapter 17. In chapter 17, verse 1, when John was called to see the great harlot, the same angel summoned him, and and most people believe it's the same angel because it's the same introduction, summoned him to see the great harlot, is now summoning him to see the great city. And we read that he came, he came and he put him on a high mountain. He took him to the high mountain. Now, some people, when it comes to this type of, this area of revelation, some people think that John is seeing a vision. And that would probably be the most common belief is that John's seeing a vision. And they understand that because it says very clearly in the scripture that he put him on the high mountain. He carried him away in the spirit to a great and a high mountain. And John is looking at something as it appears to be off in the distance. But there are other people who believe that John actually went forward in the future, a time travel of some sorts, and he was actually part of or actually around the city. You can take your pick on what you believe. It doesn't really make a difference in the outcome of everything. But what we need to understand is the Lord is showing John these incredible things. He's showing that. Do you think he's showing it for John? In some sense he is, but he's really showing it for us too. Because throughout history, we've been able to look back at what John has written in the early first, or probably the late first century, probably around 90 AD. From that point on, we're able to look back at the book of Revelation and see what hope lies before us. So John's carried in a way in the spirit to this great mountain. And I want you to notice what the angel said he was going to show John. He says, the bride, the lamb's wife. I'm going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, don't get confused by that because some people would say, wait a minute, I thought the church was the bride of Christ. Now the angel is going to show John the lamb's, the, the bride, the lamb's wife, and now he's going to describe this city for us. Remember where the bride is at this point. The bride is part of the city at this point. You can't show one without the other. They're, they're, they're interconnected as the bride of Christ is what the scripture calls all believers until the rapture of the church. We're called the bride of Christ. And it doesn't matter what denomination you come from. It doesn't matter. You know, really it, 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 what matters is either you're a believer in Jesus Christ or you're not. You're either a part of the bride of Christ. You're part of, part of the kingdom of God or you're not part of the kingdom of God. And here, here, here this angel tells John, come with me. I'm going to show you what this is all going to look like. Now, we mentioned last week that at one point God had to tell John to write because I believe that John was just standing there with his mouth open, mesmerized by what he was seeing, by what was taking place before him, by this incredible, incredible place that is now being described as a new Jerusalem that he can only use the earthly words that he knows and he's given us the best description he can. And John describes the city as this, verse 11, having the glory of God Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. John is impressed with the glory of the city, the light of the city. It's glorious like precious stones, like jasper, clear as crystal. He gives us, you know, it's this city descending out of heaven. John's looking at it from a high mountain. And we don't know if he's looking up or he's looking down. We just know that he's on a high mountain and he's gazing at this city. And he says, the glory of God is incredible. We just sang about the glory of God on this earth and how incredible it is for us to look at creation that God has made for us to enjoy and say, wow, I can see the glory of God in the mountains, in the ocean. I can see the glory of God around us. That's nothing what we're going to see in this new Jerusalem. The glory of God here is going to be incredible because sometimes we have words 
that we call like glory or maybe even the word thank you sometimes. We use these words and have you noticed they have different, you can have different levels of thanks in your life. You know, you can be thank you like the courteous, you know, I thank you just to be nice. But then there can be other things in your life where somebody does something for you or they help you in some way where your thankfulness, your gratitude is deeper than that. But it's the same word. It can, it can mean different things. It can mean different levels, if you will. So when John says he sees the glory of the city, magnify it by a hundred on what you think glory is. And I also think that we're not going to really understand what it's going to look like until we get there. Because as I said before, John's limited to the words that he knows. And as he describes it to us, he's going to give us an impression. And he likens it to stones. We're going to see a lot of stones, glorious, glorious gems, stones. He's going to talk about these things. You're going to see that it's, a lot of it is clear. A lot of the city he's talking about clear as crystal. Why? So the light of God can shine through it. It's going to be an amazing picture. I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. And then we're going to go come back and talk about them. Because I think they all fit together. So follow along with me. Also, speaking of the new Jerusalem here, she had a great and a high wall with 12 gates and the 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who walked with me had a gold reed to measure this city its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, along with the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the, the, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysorase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Anybody, an artist, want to give it a shot? Draw a picture of what it describes there. Many people have tried it, many people have come out. If you, if you are interested in art, you can find that lots of people have taken that exact passage of Scripture and they've tried to describe what the New Jerusalem will look like. And it's interesting to look at, but I think we need to focus on exactly what we do know about it and what God tells us. And, and John describes the walls of the city. He, he describes them in a number of parts. The first thing he tells us about the, wall, about the walls is there are 144,000 cubits. Well, that is about 200 feet, in case you're wondering. So the walls of the city, and it's believed that's the width of the walls of the city, 200 feet thick. They're in, within the walls contained these 12 gates. 12 gates. That's interesting. Each gate was guarded by an angel. Notice that. That means the entrance to God's city is not open to anyone who chooses. It's guarded by an angel, but only to those who, who, whom God gives the right to be there. Each gate had a tribe of Israel, the name of one of the tribes of Israel written on it. I like that. The names of the tribes on the gates communicate the unity and the heritage that the people of God have with Israel. 
Let me explain it to you this way. God will never forget the tribes of Israel, even unto eternity. And we see them now cohabitating together with the church in the New Jerusalem. Each gate is one pearl. One pearl. Must have been a big oyster, huh? One pearl to be the size of a whole gate? Remember, John's using words that he knows. As he looks upon a gate, as he gazes, and goes, wow, that looks like a pearl. So he describes it as a big pearl. If you were to draw it, most people would put a pearl in there to try to draw it. Was it really a pearl? We don't know that. We don't know that. What we do know is the gates are there. They contain the, tribe, the names of the tribe of Israel. But we also know the wall is built upon 12 foundations, right? There's 12 foundations there. And they contain the names of the 12 apostles. Isn't it great how we see the, the Israel, who is God's chosen people, and don't be fooled, God is not done with the nation of Israel, now cohabitating with the church in the New Jerusalem. It's a wonderful thing. The foundations are the eternal testimony to the apostles and their permanent place in God's plan. They were the original 12 that walked with Christ. They're, they're what the, the foundation of the church is built upon. If it, here's what we need to remember. If it isn't built on the foundation of the apostles, it isn't the right place for God's people. Now let me say that to you again. If it's not, if what you're believing, if what you're doing, if the doctrine that you're, that you're, that you take in, that we take in, if it's not built on the foundation of the apostles, then we need to seriously question what we believe. Why? Because the new Jerusalem is built on the foundation of the apostles. Be very, very careful when we begin to leave the doctrine, the early church doctrine, and, and begin to move towards outside doctrines that have maybe newer, have just recently come around and we see things popping up, I would say we need to caution ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, is what we do, is what we believe, is it built on the foundation of the apostles? Because what we see is these huge walls are built on 12 foundations. The construction of the wall and the foundations we read were adorned with precious stones. Wouldn't that be, if you saw something spectacular, if you saw something that you had never seen before and you had to describe its glory, its wealth, its preciousness, its beauty, I can see why John used precious stones. I can see why he would say, that's like an emerald. That's like a diamond. I can see where he would do that. Now, we also read where John described the size of the city. And, it's, and, and interestingly enough, he gives us the size. It's 12 thousand furlongs anybody know how long that is it's about 1500 miles 12,000 furlongs is about 1500 miles so we know that its height its width and its breadth are all equal so do the math 1500 miles long 1500 miles wide so just to put it in perspective from Maine to Florida is 1500 miles you can set the western border at about Denver Colorado that's a lot bigger than the biggest city isn't it What's the biggest city in the world right now? New York. I think, I, think, I think last time I checked it was New York. That little tiny thing fits in what God's new Jerusalem will be. 1,500 miles. But oh, don't forget this. 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. High. How high can we go right now? What's the, what's the highest, I don't know, what the high, what's the highest buildings in the world? They're not anywhere near 1,500 miles. How high can an airplane fly? Five miles? Maybe six at the most? Maybe, Jason, how high can an airplane fly? 41,000, 41, so say 5,000 feet, so maybe eight miles. That's nothing compared to 1,500 miles. You say, well, Rob, I'm just wondering, is there going to be enough room in that city for all the Christians? 
I mean, it seems pretty big. It seems pretty massive. But what it, would, it, would it really help us? Would there be enough space? Well, interestingly enough, Dr. Henry Morris uh, decided he was going to try to figure out how much space each Christian would have. <laughs> he based his calculations on the fact that there would be 20 billion Christians in this city. Now, understand the world population right now is around 7 billion. Okay, So he's guessing that there'll be 20 billion Christians. So including all those who have passed and all those who will come, he guesses at 20 billion. And it's just a guess. We don't really know for sure. But this is what he guesses. If, in fact, there were 20 billion Christians, he figures each Christian would have a 75-acre block. So you get 75 acres. That's what he would figure. That gives you an idea of the magnitude or the size of this city. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. It's just kind of fun to play with and figure out. But that's what he would say. But I know some of you go, you listen, you just lost me. You brought in math and numbers, and I am just it, whew, right over my head. Listen, if the dimensions, if the descriptions, if they seem confusing or impossible, I want you to keep these two things in mind. There's two things that are important. First, we must understand the ideas communicated in the details. John, it's, 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 we don't want to get caught up in the details of what is it going to look like. Grab the ideas behind it. Grab the heart behind it. Grab the, grab the fact that John is describing its glory, its beauty, and its splendor about how magnificent it is. Don't, don't get caught up in all the little details and how big and all that stuff. Just know that God, John is saying, listen, it's going to be great. It's going to be incredible. And it's going to be big and it's going to be awesome. And the second thing we must understand is the city, whose archi- the city's architect and maker is God. God is the one creating the city. He's the one designing the city. He's the one building the city. We should expect it to be beyond our comprehension, Right? We can't comprehend everything God does, and if we think that we could, we'd be foolish. So when we come to these areas of Scripture, we need to understand, listen, what we need to take away is God says it's going to be really cool. You're going to, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, this is, where he's, this is what he's building. This is what he's preparing. I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and receive you unto myself. This is what he's talking about someday. This is what he's building. We should always expect what God's doing to be beyond our comprehension. It's part of us submitting to the sovereignty of our Lord. Now look at verse 22. John also tells us what he doesn't see in the New Jerusalem. And that's just as interesting as what he does see. John says, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For, the, for God, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. John says, I found it kind of strange there was no temple there. No temple. Perhaps it's, John's even surprised by this. But remember, every great city in the ancient world had a temple, many temples. It was their entertainment of the day. It's where they went to worship the, the pagan gods. It was where they, it'd be like us going to a great city and say, here in the United States, I went to a great city and they didn't have a sports team. There was, there was, no, there was no, no football team, no baseball team. There was no, they didn't have a bank. They didn't, have, they didn't have, you know, a shopping mall. All, all great cities have certain staples, and John finds it strange, and what he finds strange is there's no temple in it. Why, why is there no temple? Why no entertainment? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It'll be forever in the presence. Everything and everywhere is the dwelling place of the Lord God Almighty. Before Jesus, the temple was a prophecy. In the Christian era, God's people are his temple. In the millennium, the temple will be a memorial. Here, the temple is everywhere. You're, it is the temple. You're living in the temple. You're living in the presence of God. 
Henry Alford said this, he said, the inhabitants need no place of worship or sacrifice. You don't need a temple. There's no worship or sacrifice that's needed. The object of all worship being present. The object of worship is right before you, and the great sacrifice himself is there. You don't need to go to church because you're always in the presence of God. You don't need to go someplace to worship because that's what you'll always be doing. it's, It's in the presence. But notice John also says there's no sun. There's no moon. He said, well, I want to I get a tan. I like the summer days. Listen, we will be illuminated by the Lord God Almighty. There will be, it won't be necessary for a sun. God's light will be shining forth. Remember when Moses came down off Mount Sinai and his face was shining? That was just from spending time with God. Can you, we'll be like little lights walking around maybe. I don't know. You know, we spend time with God and we're all shining. And it's like you don't even need You walk into a room and it just lights up. It's amazing what we see. But notice it says, John says, the Lamb is the light. The glory and the brilliance of Jesus will illuminate the entire city. There'll be no street lights, no lights. It won't be necessary. I don't know about you, but I get excited reading this. I can't wait to get there. But I know there's work to be done here. Look at verse 24. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Who are these nations? Who are these kings? This is an area that sometimes can be hard to understand. Maybe we'll just have to wait to be sure, but we can speculate while we're here. Some people believe there'll be nations and kings dwelling on this new earth, but living outside of the new Jerusalem. Some people believe that. Though the description of the city does not answer all the questions concerning the eternal state, the revelation given to John describes a beautiful and glorious future for all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's what we have to focus on. Don't get lost in the details. Understand what John's saying is, listen, if your trust, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, this lies ahead for you. It's, it's, what, it's what's coming for the believer. Verse 27, but there shall be, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Does this mean the city will be threatened by these things? Will there be an attacker coming from the outside trying to get in, lies trying to come in, abominations trying to come in, something that might defile the city? No, no, I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe we'll be threatened by that because we saw back in Revelation chapter 20 that sin and death were cast into the lake of fire. I think what we're saying is that this is a warning. I think John's giving us a warning to the people that would read this before this time. I think what he's saying is this warns people today the only way to be part of the new Jerusalem is to turn to the Lamb. I think what he's saying very clearly is, listen, you can't get in here on your own. You can't get in here as a, anybody in here never told a lie your whole life? Not even a little white one, never told a lie. Seriously, anybody, raise your hand if you've never told a lie, ever. Not a single hand went up. Well, On your own, you can't make it in. So what John's warning us and what he's telling us is, listen, no matter how good you've been, maybe you've only told one little white lie in your whole life. Maybe it was just because you got a bad sweater from Aunt Susie and you told her you liked it and you didn't. Maybe it was something silly like, that's the only thing I've ever done. Well, there'll be no liars in that city is what he says. The only way to get in is through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's making it very clear. So he's not saying the city will be attacked by this. What he's saying is you can't get in any other way it's the warning that we should hear then in verse look at 
verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Pure. The river comes right from the throne of God. It's coming out of the throne of God. Therefore, it's pure and it's spotless. Coming, can you imagine what this looks like? I mean, you kinda, your mind kind of goes as we're talking about this stones and clear and crystal and gold. And now there's a throne of God. And you just picture that in your mind. And, and all of a sudden, there's water coming out of the throne. And can you just imagine to sit next to that river? What is, do you like to sit next to a river? You ever, you ever enjoy just kind of hanging out next to a river and just hear, not an overflowing river, just a, a meandering river where you can hear the water on the rock? Isn't it pleasant? Isn't it peaceful? Several years ago, Rebecca and I took a trip to, uh, to Colorado. Before we had kids, we could do that kind of stuff. And uh, we rented a motorhome, and we went and we spent about a week driving into Rocky Mountain National Park. And, you know, we went river rafting, and we did a bunch of hiking and things like that. And uh, one afternoon, we were really tired, and we found this little river. It wasn't even part of our plan, and we pulled the motorhome off to the side, off the road, down this little dirt road. And we sat there all afternoon by this river with a book in our... It's, it's my favorite part of the whole trip. I, I, we got to sit there, and we just kind of... I laid in the motorhome, I napped, I read my book. It was just one of those days that was... I can't imagine what it'll be like to sit next to the river that's flowing from the throne of God. How peaceful it will be. How serene it will be. It'll be nothing compared to the rivers here on earth. It'll be spotless. It'll be pure. It'll be an incredible place to sit. And look at verse 2. In the middle of its street. And on either side of the river. Was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life. Genesis 3 speaks of a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But man, Adam and Eve couldn't eat from it. Do you remember what happened? After they had sinned, they were told not to eat from the tree of life because they would live forever. And God didn't want man to live forever in his sinful state after the sin. But now here it is, we get to, in, in this new Jerusalem, we get to eat freely of the tree. And it, we read that it bears different kinds of fruit. Now again, John's using words he knows. He knows what a fruit tree looks like. He knows the different kinds of fruit. You know, will it be apples, peaches, and pears, and plums? I don't know. But it sure seems like we're going to be eating in heaven, doesn't it? Jesus ate in his glorified body when he came back to earth. Can you imagine the meals that we're going to have in heaven? Do you ever have a good piece of fruit? I mean, just a, a, just a good juicy piece of fruit. There's nothing better than biting into a big, for me, it's peaches. That's my favorite fruit. Biting into a big, juicy peach and the juice just starts running down your hand and there's nothing. You've got to run to the sink, otherwise it's going to drip all over the floor. That's, the kind, that's what we're talking about here. This incredible fruit. And notice it's right in the middle of the street and the river is just flowing around it. You can just walk around it. It's flowing around. But also notice the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Why do the nations need to be healed now? I thought that was taken care of. Understand that word for healing is therapian, where we get our English word for therapy from. Therapy. And while it can also mean healing, like a process of healing, it can also mean health giving or maintaining health as well. So it's maintaining the health of the nations there. So the leaves of this, this tree of life is maintaining the health of all of the people of the nations that are going to be represented there in the New Jerusalem. Then in verse 3, there shall be no more curse no more curse but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it his servants shall serve him they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads there shall be no night there they need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light 
and they shall reign forever and ever. In heaven, the curse is gone. The curse of what? The curse of sin. Are you guys living under the curse of sin today? You better believe it. Nobody raised their hand when I asked who's never lied. We're living under the curse of sin. Since the fall of man and, the cre- and creation, we've lived under the effect and the curse of sin described in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 and 19, through 19. Sorrow and pain in childbirth for a woman, that's part of the curse. Friction between men and women, that's part of the curse. The necessity of hard and often futile work for man's food and for sustenance, for his life, that's all part of the curse. And most of all, death. All this is going to be lifted. All it's going, to, it's going to be lifted. Heaven will be a place where work and service will be focused on God. We will have the opportunity to serve him, and it won't be like going to work here. Oh, i got to go to work again. They call it work for a reason, right? It's labor because you have to labor. People that want to go to work and not work, that doesn't make any sense. But it won't be that way in heaven. The curse will be lifted. There will be no sin in heaven, no temptation in heaven. We will be forever in the presence of God. And look at verse 4. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. We will be face to face with the Lord. Right now we read no man can see the face of God and live, right? But there's coming a day where we will be in his presence, where we can look upon his face. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I understand two things. First, that they shall literally and physically, with their risen bodies, actually look into the face of Jesus. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? You see, if you're a believer, and if you know the Lord, and if you know you've been forgiven, when I say you get to look into the face of Jesus, you just, you're just in awe. You're just like, wow, I can't believe it. That's coming in my future. If you really don't understand, you may not, well, what's the big deal? If your sins are forgiven, you know what the big deal is. You know what it means that he died in your place. You know what it means that he's redeemed. You know that he paid a price for you. You know what that means. And when you get a chance to see him, thank you. You think, hey, thanks, Jesus. It's going to be a lot more than thank you. It's going to be forever worship. The second thing he said, secondly, spiritually, this is us when we get to heaven, spiritually, their mental faculties will be enlarged. They'll be enlarged so that we shall, we shall, um, that they shall see he enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ. So our, our, our faculties mentally, we're going to, it's going to be greater. You see, right now we're limited to understanding the things of the Lord. When we see Christ face to face, our our spiritual faculties, our mental faculties are going to become greater where we actually understand so much more than we understand now. To understand him, we'll understand his work, his love, his all in all that we never understood before. You see, there's going to be our eyes. You ever have questions for God? God, why did you do this? Why, why do we have to go through this? Why, why is this happening? Why is that happening? I don't understand the Lord. Lord why, I don't, and you have all these questions. Well, when you see him face to face, those questions will disappear. That's what he's saying. That's what, it, that's what it's showing us. That we, shall see his, we shall see his face. And it also says our names are going to be on, his name will be on our forehead. His name shall be on their foreheads. His name on our foreheads indicates we will be identified with Christ and our God forever never any doubts we will be stamped there'll be no questions no doubts no backsliding no falling away no messing up and coming back no oh i had a bad day it won't happen in heaven it'll just be we will be gloriously attached to him stamped on him forever but john again points out in verse 5 there shall be no night there they don't need a lamp nor light of the sun 
For the Lord God gives them light. The light that we need is going to come from God. The darkness of this age will be gone. And God's people will enjoy an eternal reign. The millennium reign that we talked about a few weeks ago is only a thousand years. There's coming a point at this day when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, created by God, where the bride of Christ will reside, it will never end. You think, well, a thousand years seems like a long time, not in the eyes of eternity. A thousand years is a short time. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen two final conclusions. We've seen two final resting places. We've seen two final destinations. The first, the name, New Jerusalem. That's the one that John's describing. That's one opportunity for you to go to, the New Jerusalem. The second is the lake of fire. The final resting place is the lake of fire. He lays it out again, two possible final conclusions for every human life on earth. That's the underlying tone through Revelation. This is what's going to become. And I find it interesting in the very beginning he gave the warnings to chapters 2 and 3 were warnings to the believers, to his church. He would find out something they were doing wrong and he would correct them on that. And then as he went in, in chapter 4, we saw the rapture of the church take place. And then from there on, we saw judgment from chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, 16, all the way up. And we saw judgment. We saw the white throne judgment. We saw the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And then now in the final two chapters, he's shown us the new Jerusalem, the final place. And it all comes down to this one thing. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's what it came down to. That's what we read. They shall reign forever and ever. If my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then I'll be part of the new Jerusalem forever and ever. If my name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, just turning real quick back to chapter 20, verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, we can get so confused in Revelation and we can make up theological arguments and theological debates, but it all sums up to this. God has a plan. He wants to tell us what it is. He wants to tell us what's coming. And he wants us included in the Lamb's Book of Life because he wants us to be part of the New Jerusalem. But nonetheless, he gives us a choice because love always has to be a choice. If there's no choice, there's no love. He lets each person make their own choice on where they want to end up. And he's not done warning us. All through the tribulation, he's still calling people to himself. He's still sending 144,000 witnesses to testify of Christ and testify of the things of God. He, never, he has never given up on mankind, but there's coming a day where it will all end. So the question is simple this morning. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If it is, rejoice because you're going to see your Savior's face someday. And you're going to be able to dwell in this new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. If it's not, you need to get it there. But it's your choice. Now, I wouldn't want to guilt anybody or make anybody move emotionally about that. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and you've never made that commitment, or maybe you've walked away for a while and it's time to come back, just come see me afterwards. We'll pray quietly with one another, and I'll pray and lead you, lead you back to the Lord. And You don't really need me. You can do it on your own. It's not, it has, I have no special powers or anything like that. It's a matter of you making a commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of your life and believing that he died for your sins. You see, oftentimes when people are presented with this decision, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Right away they say, well, I want to go to heaven. But they never really count the cost of what that means. And they say, they come forward in church, they pray a prayer, and they say, I bought fire insurance. Now I'm not going to burn in the lake of fire. I'm going to heaven. Why? 
Here's my policy. I prayed the prayer when I was 10 years old or 12 years old or 20 years old or 25 years old, but that's not really what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It might start with a prayer, but following Jesus Christ is much more than that. It means you're giving up your ideas, you're giving up what you think is right and wrong, and you're following what the Lord says is right and wrong. And you'll find yourself changing. You'll find yourself, your life, the things that you wanted to do, you won't do anymore. You'll find that it's much more valuable to spend time in church and doing things with the Lord than it is to spend time with the people and the places that you once were. You'll find a new purpose in life because you'll realize God has a plan for my life. I'm not here just meandering through this life for no apparent reason. There's actually a plan. I, I was really born for a reason. I, God really created me. He knew me before my mother's womb for a specific purpose in life. As a Christian, that's a blessing. Because I can spend every day trying to fulfill that purpose. Every day seeking God, saying, God, what is it that you want me to do today? But you see, I think too many people have been duped into thinking they're saved when they're not. And the question is, is your name in the book of life? And if it is, your life will reflect that. Your life will bear the fruit of that. We're not perfect. We're just forgiven. Christians aren't perfect. Christians don't stop sinning, I promise. If you figured it out, come tell me because I want to know. We still make mistakes. We still fall short every day. But our desire is to get up and serve the Lord for one more day. If you don't know Christ, come see me afterwards. Don't leave here without making that decision to follow him. If you do know him, man, look what we have to look forward to. Look at the rejoicing that takes place in our life. As bad as it can get, how, bad, how much suffering can we have on this earth? What if your whole life is spent suffering and you live for 100 years? What does that compare? What, how does that compare to 1,000 years in the millennial reign? How does that compare to eternity? It doesn't. You see, if Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins and he never does anything else for you, if he never did anything else, and he will, but if he never did, wouldn't that be enough? It should be. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we study these final chapters of Revelation, it just overjoys my heart to see what lies ahead for the believer. But Lord, as we study the previous chapters, it burdens my heart to see what lies ahead for those who don't believe. Because while we all have friends and family and loved ones that are in both of those categories, Lord, we have to put it all into your hands. Thank you for the hope that you give the believer. Thank you for the multiple warnings that you give the unbeliever. And Father, it's my heart that those that don't know you would come to a, an abundant life in you, a life that you have laid out for them, a life that you have planned for them. And those that do know you, Lord, may we just look into eternity. May we not get caught up focused on our day-to-day -day activities and not focused on our situation or our life today. May we look into eternity and see what lies ahead. For you are far more concerned about our eternal state than our comfort here on this earth. And Lord, as you mold us, as you shape us, as the pain that we walk through is hard, as it's difficult, may we trust that you're with us. May we feel your presence. You've given us your word. May we seek you in your word. And may you meet us here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.